Good morning, Anchorage, Alaska, the lower 48, and the rest of the world. This is Bruce Lindquist with his podcast, Wonderful Counselor. Hey, guys. It has been a little while since I've had a podcast out to you. My apologies. Life happens. Sometimes life can be hard, but with Jesus, and when you know you're loved, when you really know you're loved by our God, then it's beautifully hard. And guys, this has been a beautifully hard season in my life. I'm really excited to bring you this podcast, episode 9. It might be my last podcast. I know I've been doing this podcast since February, and the numbers have just been dropping, and I'm really getting more and more convinced that social media does not want the gospel of Jesus Christ to be released to the world. So we'll see how this podcast does. But if the numbers don't start to pick up, then I I don't know if I'm going to do one in November or not. I want to thank those of you who've taken the time to listen to the podcast. You guys are beautiful. I I so appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for giving me 29 minutes. I know sometimes up to 55 minutes of your time. Your time's valuable. And I appreciate you listening to the podcast and sharing it. It means a lot to my heart um, to know that the effort of writing out the scripts, having it edited, having it recorded, and, and just all the work that goes into a podcast that it's received and it's a blessing because that's really what I want to be for you guys. I want to be a blessing. And, I, and, and you're going to have fun with this podcast. This is going to be um, a, a very playful, whodunit kind of podcast. I'm going to introduce you guys to later, a little bit later on to the, the trial of the century where you're actually going to have an opportunity to hear a case And you're going to determine if the person's innocent or guilty. And then kind of figure out why. Because the why is more important than the verdict. Understanding why the person's innocent or guilty and how that applies to you. And And then I get pretty serious going into the gospel and a little challenging. Because God just doesn't want to entertain you. Holy Spirit wants to transform your life so we can love like he loves so let's have a little fun today i'm going to start this out with um first of all the title it's a hobbit size god and it's called the trial of the century you guys ready to play okay there my beloved bride nikki and i were in 2015, in Wellington, New Jersey, New Jersey, New Zealand, that's quite a change, at the actual sites of the Lord of the Ring movies. We visited the movie store, held the movie props, and had our pictures taken with Gandalf and Gollum statues. It was just a really fun trip. When I think of the story of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, it's inspiring, right? The characters are well-developed to the point you actually care for them. 
And of course, the classic good versus evil battle on a grand CGI scale. Yet when all is said and done, the actual characters did not ever exist. They were constructions from the inventive master storyteller of J.R.R. Tolkien. And as much as we enjoy seeing the Shire and visiting Hobbiton and going into the little buildings and going over to the, the Green Dragon and having tea and crumpets and all of that, which was a blast, it's all a myth. While the narratives are inspiring and maybe reference what was happening in the real world around the author at that time, Middle Earth doesn't exist. And these myths have no power to transform you from the inside out. You know, many approach God or gods as a myth. You know, a construct of man's imagination. And I can see their point, but only so far. If you review history, the gods of mankind have a tendency to look like us, right? Made in our image. Gods that would grant us what we wanted. And we're just as moody as we were. Gods that could use and justify basically anything they wanted to do to anyone. And gods that not only encouraged, but demanded sex worship. Yet as a Christ follower, I see a glaring difference between the God that man created and the God that created man. I'm left with this haunting question. And what I want to challenge you is, especially those who you don't believe in God, or who have tried to make God in your own image, to thoughtfully consider. It does not seem logical that man would create a God that would be so contrary to the nature of man. Why would man do such a thing? It just doesn't make sense to me. So I start this podcast where I was inspired. The year, 1999. I found myself sitting on a runway in the Middle East where I was introduced to a hobbit-sized god. I invite you to join me to meet him. You probably even know each other quite well. This is a fun little podcast episode. Again, that has the trial of the century. Try to figure out, is the alleged murderer innocent or guilty? May I ask you a question? Have you ever wished you were someplace else? Oh, it could be anywhere other than where you are. I found myself when I was 18 years old, ready to leave Kathlamet, Washington. This is a small town to go off on a grand adventure. Ticket in hand. No idea where I'd be going in the coming years. And it didn't matter much. Anywhere but here. God, I found, was not only listening, but ready to unleash later on in my life his sense of humor. I went from these beautiful lush forests and shimmering blue waters of the Columbia River of my childhood to a world that reminded me of a Martian landscape. I was in Prince Sultan Air Force Base, Saudi Arabia. I remember walking through that red sand, looking up to heaven and saying to God, I know I wanted to see the world. I imagine there was quite a smile on his face. 
Then I became quite sick. The cause? Was it that wonderful anthrax shot I was required to have? Or was it the toxic chemicals that were coming off the tents when the tent city went down and we were moved into the hardened facility built by the Bin Laden company? I'm not making that up. Apparently, Osama Bin Laden had a lot of relatives, and they were into construction. Well, God provided this R&R opportunity to be escorted, or to escort a senior non-commissioned officer who was suicidal to Lahnstuhl Air Force Base, Germany. So I jumped at the chance. I would not ever been to Germany before. That day, we flew out on a C-9A Nightingale, which is a very small airplane, and made several landings, one which is the inspiration for the title of this podcast. There, I was introduced to a hobbit-sized god. When our plane landed, we stopped for fuel. We entered in what I would describe as the relief valve for what many would consider a repressive religious society. Here I was informed people from all over the Middle East would come across the border where alcohol flowed, the women were not wrapped so tightly you could barely see them, but instead they were unwrapped and and sensual, and sexual pleasure was available in all its forms and fantasies. What caught my eye, though, since I was only told about such things and didn't actually experience them firsthand, were the houses. There was something quite strange about them. They all had walls in front of them, and I couldn't figure out the walls. They didn't seem to serve any purpose. They were not very high. A robber, or even a child for that matter, could easily scale them. It was the strangest thing. I asked the person responsible for helping us reach our destination, what's up with these little walls? He shared the people who live here built their walls because they believed their God couldn't see over them so they could do whatever they want in their homes. My response, do they think God is a hobbit? Now, I don't know if what he told me was true. He may have been pulling my leg. And I don't intend to tug your toe on this one. It would make sense, though. If, if you believe in a God that can't see you, you can easily leave your religion behind at the border and let your passions run wild. Because who'd know? Now, before you say, Bruce, I can't relate. I don't have a small wall in front of my house. I certainly don't see God as hobbit-sized. I'm not sure I even believe in him at all. I'd like to ask you this question. Do you put a wall up in front of your life and either believe God can't see you or your sins might be hobbit-sized? Or it's just no big deal, God or no no God? In society today, God has been relabeled from doesn't exist to not relevant to whatever we want God to be. Yet the results of the destruction deconstruction of God, making him hobbit size, has led to our ruin because we end up with a God that acts and thinks just like we do. We end up with a God in our own image instead of the other way around. If the God you say you believe in acts and thinks and wants everything that you do, then you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. 
When you worship yourself, you have a hobbit-sized God. And then you can justify anything. Here is a case in point. On my first assignment, I was stationed at Kadena Air Force Base, Okinawa, Japan. I was a jet mechanic then. And I remember that night praying to Jesus. I know I asked you to be my savior when I was eight. And I believed in you. But I'm coming to you as a man. And I ask you not just to be my savior, but my Lord. Sometimes God needs to take us away from everything that's familiar to get our attention. And boy, did he get my attention on that island. And then God showed up. And he changed my heart. And I read this scripture in Romans. It says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And one of the ways I decided to demonstrate my faith and to show I wasn't ashamed was to take my Bible with me to work. While I was on my lunch break, a senior non-commissioned officer saw I was reading the Bible and said, show me in that Bible where it says John can't commit adultery. I turned to the book of Exodus. I read him from the Ten Commandments and said, it is written. It didn't sound like Charlton Heston, but it is written, thou shalt not commit adultery. He gave me this mischievous smile that made him look like a villain off a of melodrama. He said, it doesn't say John can't commit adultery. And laughed. And so did many in the break room. If that were to happen today, I would tell him a story. There was a man by the name of John. I'll even use his last name. And he lived in a very small town which didn't even have streetlights. One could walk the entire downtown area in five minutes and not even work up a sweat. John lived in a town where nothing earth-shaking happened. It was the type of community where people left their front doors open and the local sheriff would race speeding cars instead of giving them a ticket. One night, a thief by the name of Tim, not known in these parts, came into the town. He walked right through John's open door, made his way to the bedroom, found John and his wife, and pointed his gun at them. The thief demanded money, but before John could reply, the thief shot John's wife, Joan, in the head, and she bled out on their bed. John was so filled with primal rage, he charged the thief, took a shot to the chest, and kept coming. He wrestled the gun out of his hand, held the gun to the thief's head, ready to pull the trigger. But then when you know it, the police showed up, pointing their guns at John, demanding he drop his gun. And he reluctantly complied. It took a while, and there were many surgeries, but John did recover. And then there was the funeral. The town mourned. And John buried his wife. John waited and waited. Because this whole COVID thing, right? Trials were put on hold. But finally, the trial happened. In this small town, everyone knew John. He knew about, And they knew about his affairs. He was having an affair with a local dental hygienist. And it wasn't his first 
affair. His first affair was with the physician's assistant. Yes, John was known as a womanizer, but all that was overshadowed by his wife's death and his heroic capturing of the thief in the trial. John was a hero. Since everyone in the area knew about the trial, knew about what had happened, jurors from outside the city were brought in and interviewed by the defense and the prosecution. Once the jury was set, they were sequestered to a local hotel, which was actually a large historic home turned into a bed and breakfast. They had to stay six feet away from each other, wear masks, and yell at each other to communicate. The small town news reporter, who previously reported headlines like, the cow's getting loose in someone's field, or that tall, ugly, thin man was jaywalking again, now had a major news story. There was such a buzz in the air. If you could only capture it. So the headlines in the paper read, Crime of the Century. The local reporter had no idea what he unleashed. A larger city paper picked up the story, and they were affiliated with a national news organization. Once the words Crime of the Century broke on national TV, every news agency was running with it. News crews from all over the country descended on this small town like a locust plague. Then news, or, then news organizations from all over the world got involved. You know, it was such a big story. Even the premier of China decided to wait to invade Taiwan until the trial was over. The buzz got louder, and people from all around filled this tiny courthouse. Standing room only. They even set up these TV monitors outside so people who couldn't get in could still see the trial. Heck, YouTube decided to stream it. Right? As the crowd swelled, the local and state and government got involved. It was deemed a super spreader event for the BS variant of the COVID virus. The state already had what looked like toll booths in any of the major cities. Everyone in vehicles had to have proof of two COVID vaccinations, three booster shots, and each vehicle was required to have everybody wear a mask, even pets. And you had to have 20 extra masks in your vehicle. The governor ordered the National Guard to set up checkpoints on these 28 miles leading to the small city. The people of the state pretty much threw away all their freedoms anyway a long time ago, so there wasn't much opposition. Now, universities all around the country started examining this phenomenon. What was happening? Their conclusion? It was all about white supremacy. The judge was white. The defendant was white. There weren't many people of color represented. One college professor even went as far as calling for the judge to be removed because a picture was found of him when he was in college coming out of a laundromat with a white bedsheet in his laundry basket. Then the Twitter war started, and that was rough. We had the Timunites, and we had the Johnunites. And they started this massive social media mob to the point Twitter had to shut down all its broadcasting, except for China and Iran. Then the protesters arrived. These people were so offended at being offended, various groups decided to promote their offense. There was rumors that Tim was transgendered, therefore could not be guilty, and John was the guilty one. 
there were Marxists from the local universities that were there demanding the court abolish, giving power to the people. The SAFFD organization showed up. Save animals from fur displacement. And as they protested, hunters from the local area drove by with dead elk and white-tailed deer hanging off their pickup trucks. The STT organization was there. Save the trees. And they were met by a convoy of local loggers with their logging trucks with bumper stickers that read, Up Your Axe. Hollywood even got involved. They built this massive set worthy of an epic trial. The town mayor, who came from Seattle, signed over the rights to the city and was paid an enormous amount of money and then skipped town. The new Hollywood fill-in had the court painted rainbow colors and decided to declare the day the day of the unicorn. T-shirt companies got involved and on their t-shirts it said, I survived the trial of the century. Odds makers in Las Vegas gave a thousand to one the verdict believing Tim was guilty of sin, which is kind of ironic, considered Vegas is considered sin city. Even the President of the United States got involved. He got a national TV talking about how Steve is guilty because most likely he wasn't wearing a mask and went into Bill's house in New Zealand. He got confused. He's, then he started talking about $3.5 trillion. His budget proposal is free and isn't going to cost anything. Then he went on this whole thing about global warming being the greatest threat to humanity. While many people in our inner cities were killed. Hmm. And it was all done on a fake movie set. Then there were those who opposed the death penalty because the rumor was out Tim could get a lethal injection if he was found guilty. So those wore t-shirts that were, that were for the death penalty and it said on those t-shirts, hang them high. John, he didn't believe in the death penalty. He had a conversion experience in the bedroom though that night when his wife was murdered. And now he believed. John heard that a plea deal was offered to the accused for life in prison for his life. John later found out Tim had talked to the defense attorney, and to John's relief, they refused to take it. Tim's attorney simply said, Tim is innocent. John was called as a key witness. He laid out a vivid emotional detail as graphically as he could what happened that night so that the judge and jury would have no doubt that this man deserved death penalty. The town even started to have a raffle to support local organizations for the front row seat to Tim's execution. During the closing arguments, the prosecution was relentless. There was overwhelming evidence of John, in John's testimony. The ballistics from the bullet of the in the deceased's head and in John's chest matched the gun found on the scene with Tim's fingerprints all over it. And if that was not enough, Tim had even written out a confession that he did murder Joan, 
but he was still claiming to be innocent. Tim had no alibi. He wasn't able to bring anyone to support his claim of innocence. The only thing he brought, and the attorney gave it to the judge, which was passed on to the jury, was a piece of paper that had 20 words written on it. That was his only defense. At last, the closing arguments were over. The jury was excused by the judge. They returned in a very short period of time. And of course, John is thinking, it's an open and shut case. This is good. The judge was handed the verdict and asked Tim, who was on trial, to stand to his feet. The judge brought down the gavel. What do you think the judge declared? What was the verdict and why? Would the overwhelming evidence be enough to convict Tim and send him to his death? Or would the judge declare Tim innocent? I'm going to pause in the podcast for a moment and give you guys a little time before I release the verdict. Is Tim innocent or is he guilty and why? I ask you to pause the podcast now and just review all of the information in the case. John has overwhelming evidence. The prosecution has more evidence than you probably ever expect to see in a trial about Tim's guilt. Yet Tim has a piece of paper with 20 words written on it. Is he innocent? Will it be enough? Welcome back. The judge brought down his gavel and said not guilty. Tim walked out of the courtroom, mocked John as he left. The crowd was stunned. John was dumbfounded in shock and he screamed at the judge and the jury, and he charged the bench demanding why this man by the name of Tim did not get the death penalty and was released. John wasn't the only one who watched the trial that day. There was so much happening on social media. People were outraged. How could the jury find Tim not guilty? And what was written on that paper? The judge looked at John and all those in the courtroom. And he said these words. It says in the book of the law, thou shall not murder. It doesn't say, Tim shall not murder. You see, when you make yourself an exemption from the law of God's word, like John did, you're saying this command doesn't apply to me. Yet when someone else uses the same belief about having an exemption and it impacts you, the realization sets in. You don't want a law you can manipulate. You don't want a God you can manipulate. You want justice. Why would John justify his sin? Why would Tim? To be honest, don't we all do that? God is just. He does not bow to our definition of self-justification. If he did, 
he would be a hobbit-sized god. If you think about it, we all have our pet sins we justify. What's yours? What sin do you have a wall in front of and either say God is too small to see it or my sin is too small to matter to God? If you still believe your sin's no big deal, consider the following. You're young. Hormones raging. Society around you is super sexualized. And your virginity is even, your virginity is even mocked. The music you listen to further reinforces sexual pleasure without any consequences. You don't guard your thoughts, and you look for someone to play out your fantasies with. You may even convince yourself you're doing it in the name of love. The latter, I confess, I bought that t-shirt. But thank God I was saved from buying the t-shirt factory. For most of you, you know how this works. Yet in the midst of these lustful experiences, a gift from God, sex, instead of bringing two bodies together in a covenant, sacred relationship of marriage where there's trust and intimacy, it becomes a way to cope with boredom, a way to release pressure, exercise. And in the lyrics of one of my favorite rap band songs, Don't Stop Believing, which basically seems to be about lonely people seeking out strangers to get laid, to make the loneliness go away, For just a moment, and if if you don't get lucky, you're a loser, and if you do get lucky, you're the winner, but it only goes on for the night, but that's only for the night, and then it goes on and on and on and on, and it doesn't stop. It's this merry-go-round of pleasure that will not fulfill your soul. So what are the consequences of ignoring God's command? Well, let's ask a scared young girl named Jill, who chose to visit an abortion clinic because the responsibility of the gift of sex was too much. And the life conceived is being thrown away like the condom that was supposed to keep the pregnancy from happening. Now she feels guilty and and feels ashamed. None of that was promised in the foreplay in the night of a back seat, as the song goes, in my Chevy van. And her heart, and depending on the guy's heart, it's filled with grief. While on the news media you see some flaunt their right for abortion, my body, my life, the reality is I personally haven't counseled a woman who is not having deep regret over her dead body. Who can heal that brokenness? Not a hobbit-sized God. The woman who justifies the murder of her baby lives in the world of John and Tim. God will make an exemption in my case. It was only for one night. It wasn't a baby anyway. This is what happens when you build a wall in front of your life by your own self-deception and you believe God can't see because he's a hobbit-sized God. Or if he can see, your sin is just too little or not sin at all. Let's return to John for a moment. He wanted the exemption. The Bible says John can't commit adultery. After all, it's okay, I'm married, having an affair, because I'm in love. Yes, forbidden lust chemically can arouse for a time, and pleasure feels good. However, the price for such pleasure is death. That's what the Bible says. Sin leads to death. So are you saying, Bruce, that John's sin and Tim's sin and Jill's sin are similar? Yes. Tim murdered John's wife, Joan. Joan murdered their marriage vows, 
or John murdered their marriage vows, and Jill murdered her baby. All three justified their behavior. Both seemingly got away with it, but none of them did. So before we throw rocks at John, Tim, or Jill, we need to understand what Scripture says. In Romans 3.23, it reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In a world screaming for equality, you can't be more equal than that. Isn't all such a beautiful word? It doesn't matter how you identify yourself. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter your social, economic background. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Sin is still sin. Still believe you're exempt? You look at the Ten Commandments and you say, none of those have happened to me. Haven't murdered anybody, no adultery, no abortion. Then let's visit the words of Jesus. In the gospel, he says, if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you call your brother a fool, you're guilty of hell. This would include attacking people on social media. When I was 18 years old, I met this nun when I was in Okinawa, Japan. And she shared with our fellowship her lists of sins is longer than when she first gave her life to Christ when she was young. She said, the closer you come to God's holiness, you're exposed to the light. You see more clearly how sinful you are because he lights up your darkness. Jesus said it this way. In the gospel, men, men and women will hate the light because their diseases are evil. That is why they stay in the darkness, because they don't want their deeds exposed. Let me be clear. You have, there's two choices really on the table. You can either have Jesus as your God or a hobbit-sized God, where you're greater and more powerful than a mythological God, your God. By the way, if you're playing God, that is considered a sin and breaks one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not have any other Lord your God. Let's revisit one of my favorite encounters with Jesus in the Bible found in the Gospels. I devoted my first podcast called The Scandalous Woman to her narrative. What do you do with the, the woman? The men went into her house, or went into the house, took her out of her bed, having sex, threw her on the street half naked, surrounded her with men gawking at her nakedness in disgust and lust, filled with self-righteousness with rocks in their hands, ready to literally stone her to death. The law said she was to die. So a man hands you a rock and says, according to our law, she must die. Do you throw the rock? You would most likely say no and be appalled that anyone would kill a woman for adultery. After all, that might be the very sin you say is okay. You might just be like John. Yet we live in a culture where people say there's no God or play God because that is what people do when they fill the vacuum of deity. You may not throw the stone, but what about other rocks you throw at other people because they sin differently than you do? When you play God, you determine what is right and wrong. But before you throw your rock or your rocks, even on social media, consider the words of Jesus. So you need to take a log out of your own eye before you can see clearly enough to take out the speck of your brother's eye. 
Jesus said, by the same standard you judge others, you will be judged. I watch this cancel culture, and their religion is self-righteousness. And they judge others who do not think like them, and they destroy people's lives. Yet they cannot stand up to their own standard and want to be exempt themselves from any personal responsibility of their sins. Unfortunately today, with the cancel culture, if a woman half-naked was thrown on the street and caught in the sin of perceived offense, even a microaggression, oh no, they would stone her to death in an instant. You see, when you play God, you can justify anything you do, just like John did, just like Tim did, just like Jill did, just like we do. If you look at the history, men and women in power have demanded worship, which means you have to agree with them or off with your heads. Would those who justify their own sins but condemn others for theirs don't understand as sin is no respecter to persons, and sin, no matter how much you dress it up, make it as respectful as you want, eventually brings death to the sinner. But because you don't live in a vacuum, you live around other people, your sin doesn't just exempt them from the pain either, but it causes them. Now what if you're that woman on the street caught with your sin exposed in your nakedness? What would you want? Would you want a hobbit-sized God who will justify your sin? That reminds me when I was working back in the day in private substance abuse treatment. I was facilitating this group, and in the group there were a few women who worked in a local strip club, and they were addicted to cocaine. One said, I don't have a problem because I only snort it. I wouldn't use crack. The other said, I don't have a problem because I just use crack and I don't snort it. They were justifying their drug use by the means of how they administered the drug. I see the same thing happen with alcohol addiction. person says, I can't have a problem because I only drink beer, which really isn't alcohol anyway, or because I haven't been arrested but completely ignores the destruction that's happening to his or her marriage or maybe even his own body. Now you may be saying, okay, Jesus said, you without sin cast the first stone and eventually they all dropped their rocks. They walked away. We know the scripture, Bruce. We know they knew they weren't sinless. So did she get an exemption from the law? No. We see what happens to her and Jesus' response is fulfilling the law and God's plan to address the death caused by sin. Jesus says to the woman, Woman, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, No one, Lord. And then he says some of the most beautiful words in Scripture, guys. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If she repents and turns from her sin, she's forgiven. She doesn't get an exemption from the law, and neither do we. Now, I'm not here to throw rocks at you. I'm not here to put on my religious or my cancel culture robe and live in my own self-righteousness and look down my nose at you. I have lived like God can't see over my wall. I've stayed in my darkness. I didn't want my deeds exposed before. I've done all of the above. I don't claim innocence because no one's innocent. I look at this broken and sinful world crying out for justice. And I cry out for justice. But you know when it's me on trial? 
What I want is mercy. I want God's mercy. So Bruce, how do I lose my hobbit-sized God and embrace the real God Jesus? Great question. You need to be able to see that you're a sinner without an exemption. For, for if you don't, you're not going to see a reason for a savior. As in your eyes, there'll be nothing to save you from. Now once you're aware and you see how destructive sin is and why God hates it, you'll see a need for a savior. You're not exempt. It doesn't matter how religious you are or how self-righteous you are. The Apostle Paul had beyond religious cred when he was a, a Pharisee. But he said, you know, it's all garbage compared to the surpassing knowledge of Christ. He traded in his religious and self-righteousness for the righteousness of Jesus. Scripture is clear in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. In Hebrews it says, after, judgment, after death comes judgment. You don't get away with your sin. It will eventually find you. And it will find you in God's courtroom. I have met people who tell me, when I get to heaven, they'll see my, out, my good outweighs my bad. I'll barely get in, but I'll get in. Yet in scripture in the book of Isaiah, it says your good works are like filthy rags before the Lord. Ephesians says you're not, even, you're not saved by works. To not have a hobbit-sized God, it's time to see your sin for what it really is. However, it just doesn't stop there. You need to repent of your sins and trust Jesus to be your Savior and ask him to forgive your sins. You see, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. And he was the only one who was sinless that could through his death and resurrection. Salvation comes through Jesus alone. A hobbit-sized God cannot call you out on your sin. A hobbit-sized God leaves you with an exemption that's your damnation. A hobbit-sized God says your sin isn't bad as others' sins. And in the end, God will understand. The myth isn't there is a God. The myth is you can play God and deal with justice and sin. Just look at what's happening with the cancel culture. One mistake, one mistake, misspoken word. Someone will research your life and if you found something they disagree with, then they'll cancel you. When you play God and justify yourself and condemn others and don't believe in redemption or forgiveness, there's no mercy or grace. You can't handle justice and forgiveness. Only one can, and that is Jesus. On the cross, he completed the work of the law, and justice was completed. He didn't exempt you from your sin. He saved you from it. His gift of love also removed from you the burden of carrying around trying to be God. Are you tired? I mean, you must be exhausted. Trying to be responsible for policing the world, policing social media, policing your college campuses, policing your communities by the lens of your own self-righteousness, by the, by the lens of your own blindness at the same time as you justify your own sins. Are you tired of projecting your feelings and beliefs on others? 
seeing in others the sins you can't deal with within yourself? Then it's time to leave the myth that you're exempt from sin. It's time to surrender your kingdom and it's time to repent before God and receive his kingdom. What will happen is your sins will be forgiven. But more importantly, Jesus will place his Holy Spirit in you and will transform your cold, dead, prideful, sinful, self-righteous heart into one that loves. It's a beautiful transformation, guys. It's the desire of your soul. So the choice is yours. A hobbit-sized God or a real God. Live in the myth of your own deity or surrender to God and receive his gift of love. You see, we're all out on the street half naked. It's your choice. Which God do you want? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And I pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit that you've touched someone's heart today. That they would realize that their sin, regardless of how small they think it is, is not small to you. It cost you the life of your son to redeem them back to you. Lord, I ask now that they would understand the depths of their sinfulness and their need for a Savior and the depths of your love as you gave your life for them. They're a prayer away. And I pray, Lord, that they would pray and they would ask you to be their Lord, and their Savior. I pray, Lord, that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit as promised and that you would transform them. You would transform them to be people who are known for the love they have for one another. Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your patience not willing for any to perish, but all to have everlasting life. You've been so patient with humanity. As we lift up our middle finger and flip you off in our culture, that was just one more nail in the body of Jesus on the cross. Lord, you took all sin, all our sin, all the sin from the past, the present, the future. Lord, because you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I ask that you would now touch the heart. I'm praying for revival in America. I'm praying for revival in Europe. Lord, right now the churches in Europe, a lot of them are warehouses. They're um, used for other purposes. In Europe, Lord, it seems like so many are turning away from you. And they'd rather worship a hobbit-sized God. But their myth won't save them. Only you will. And they won't know what true love is. They won't know what true mercy is. They won't know what true life is without you. So I ask Father, you left the 99 for the one. You waited on that porch as the, pro as the dad waiting for their prodigal son to come home. 
I pray that they would come home. I pray they would experience your love, your forgiveness, and you transform their hearts. Lord, I don't know if this is the last podcast that I'll be doing, but I want to thank you, Jesus, for the opportunity of sharing your gospel with the world. I ask you, take this podcast, take it, break it, bless it, and give it for our good and your glory. In the name of Yeshua, by the power of Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen. Amen.